your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. And I know I mentioned a while back we're going to get into Revelation, the book of Revelation, but this is real important we do Colossians first, and I'll I'll tell you why in a little bit. Just in a little bit, I'll tell you why, and you'll see, but throw daggers at me while I'm up here. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1, the first eight verses. I didn't mention, many of you that, that have been familiar with Calvary Chapels over the years might know of Skip Heitzig. He's a pastor of Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, New Mexico. He had gone into the hospital a day before yesterday with a subdural hematoma. And uh, and they're not sure they want it to maybe go down on its own, so they sent him home. But then yesterday he started having real bad headaches, so he's back in the hospital again, and they may have to go in and, I guess, drill the skull and, and relieve the, the blood from there. And so just want to remember to lift him up in prayer that God would heal him, that that would uh, that it all be well. He is by far, in my opinion, one of the best expositional teachers of God's Word that we have today. And uh, I just pray God's touching uh, his life and God would heal him. So be praying for Skip. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 through 8, we read the Apostle Paul writing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. The title of my message this morning is Faith, Love, Hope, and Fruit for Today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word and to know, Lord God, that you are here in our midst. Your Holy Spirit will give us not only information but application to our lives as we listen, as we dig in, Lord. We know that there's a work that you want to do in our hearts. And so we pray that we have open hearts to receive, attentive uh, uh, attention spans, Lord, to receive all that you have for us. We ask your blessing upon our children down in the children's ministry. Lord, teach their hearts as well. Give the teachers wisdom as you speak through them, that even our kids at a young age would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again, Lord, would you especially touch their life today. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with the Super Bowl a week away, and the Chiefs about to win their next Super Bowl, I, I, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to take some football play terms and apply them. What I, I found this on the internet is called Christian football. Now, i got to say before I read these, they didn't go over very well first service. So maybe it'll be better second service. I don't know. Maybe you got to understand some of the football terms. So, and, so, and, I, and, then, and I didn't write these. These were I saw on the internet. This one's called the quarterback sneak. Church members quietly leaving during the invitation. The draw play. What many children do with a bulletin during worship. Halftime. I, I did... Fix this one. The period of fellowship right after worship or right before the study begins. That can go on for at least 15 minutes. 
Bench warmer. Those who do not sing, pray, work, or apparently do anything but sit. Backfield in motion. Making a trip to the back restroom or for more coffee during the service. <laughs> Staying in the pocket. What happens to a lot of money that should be given to the Lord's work? <laughs> Instant replay. The preacher loses his notes and falls back on last week's illustrations. <laughs> Sudden death. What happens to the attention span of the congregation if the preacher goes over time? Trap. When you're called on to pray and are asleep. Two-minute warning. The point at which you realize the sermon is almost over and begin to gather up your children and your belongings. I like this one. End run. Getting out of the church quickly by skirting around the pastor at the back door. <laughs> Finally, the blitz. The rush to the restaurants following the end of service. I want to ask us all a question this morning. Is Jesus making a difference in your life? I think it's an important question to ask each of us as we've entered the new year because it will tell you where you're at with Jesus and just how important He really is to you. Because where we are at individually with Jesus is where the church is going to be at with Jesus. Are we going to be a church that's sold out for Jesus? Are we going to be a church that's happy with just kind of scratching the surface of what God can do? Is 2020 going to be a year where you can totally give yourself to knowing Jesus and making Him known? See, this morning as we start this great letter by the Apostle Paul, I believe that it's going to be an encouragement to all of us to know Jesus more and more and as a result to be led by His Spirit to bring glory to His name. See, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit over the last four weeks and we've been looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. But the ultimate job of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit that speaks to us through the Word of God, pointing us to Jesus. And really, there is no better book that exalts Jesus more than the book of Colossians. It's been said, if you want to understand the true nature of Jesus Christ, you should study, first of all, the first chapter of John's Gospel, the 19th chapter of Revelation, which we will get to, and the book of Colossians. That's, that's what we're doing this first. If you have those three under your belt, you will have a solid understanding of who Jesus is, and what he desires to do in our world today. That's why, again, before we get to the book of Revelation, I wanted to get into Colossians. And my prayer is as we go through this book, we will learn some things that will challenge us and cause us to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus. See, as we thumb through this epistle, we see that it's only four chapters long. There's only 95 verses, way less information than you'd find on some web page. But within these 95 verses, what it contains will blow your mind. The information in this little book has kept churches on track, kept false teachers and, and false prophets running scared for centuries. Now let me give you a little background before we begin. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was powerful. It was effective so much so that people from all over Asia Minor were coming to hear him. Two of those people that Paul preached to in Ephesus were Epaphras and Philemon. These guys not only heard the gospel, but they were greatly impacted by it. Both of these men were from Colossae. So what do you think they did after they got saved? They went back to Colossae and began telling their friends all about Jesus. They came, they, 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 they've come to know Jesus and now they want to make him known. So much so that before long there was a church meeting in Philemon's house and his son Archippus became the pastor. 
This church was going great. Epaphras did the, the discipling as well as evangelizing. Philemon was in charge of hospitality. And Archibus did the week-by-week teaching. God was doing a great work in this little church in this city. Now we know whenever God does a great work, the, the enemy is not going to sit idly by and just say, oh, dude, that's great. He's not going to let it happen. To understand what was going on and what happened to the church in Colossae, you've got to understand a little bit about the city itself. Colossae was 100 miles in and from Ephesus on what was at one time a major trout route, a, a, a route, a trade route, trout, that's what those words together, major trout, to India and China. As the trade route was growing, two other cities sprung up on that route, Laodicea and Hierapolis. All these three cities, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, start out with, with all equal importance, but Laodicea became the political center of the area. Hierapolis became the trade center, and Colossae, well, it became what you'd call Radiator Springs, if you're used to cars and Pixar movies. Small town that, that never made it. Colossae was now living in the shadow of those two other cities. It's been said that Colossae was the most unimportant town to which Paul ever wrote a letter to. And it may have been an unimportant town, but there was important people there going on. Secondly, Colossae was also a very spiritual city. Beyond the trade route, open door to many religious systems that, that passed through over the years. There was some type of, of church or, or temple on every corner. Every major religion, every form of spirituality was represented in that city. Greek gods and, and goddesses were worshipped. Eastern mysticism was popular. Many hardcore cults were active in the area. Asceticism, or a life of self-denial, was in fashion right along with hedonism, which was anything goes. There was this great sense of spirituality all mixed up in the city of Colossae. Now, Paul does say where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And that was true for the church in Colossae. The Christian church, it was alive. It was thriving in the midst of all that. But see, that's where the battle comes in. Because with a church like that thriving in that area, all these other religious groups wanted a piece of it, and they wanted to come in and infiltrate and change them. And that one, uh, the one that was having the greatest impact at that time were the Gnostics. Now, it's important to understand the Gnostics because the spirit of Gnosticism is still very much alive today and it's a problem in the Christian church today. See, the Gnostics considered themselves to be people of superior knowledge who could help the lesser Christians attain a deeper spirituality. Now, the opposite of Gnostic, by the way, is agnostic. And you add the A to that word, it makes it, you might have heard that term. The agnostic says, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God, an agnostic would say there's something, but I just don't know. Now, at least they're admitting their ignorance. Spurgeon used to say that agnostic is but the Greek word for the Latin ignoramus. So one might say, I don't believe the Bible because I'm an ignoramus. But the opposite of agnostic is Gnostic. I know. And, and not, the Gnostics at that time, they were destroying fellowships and destroying people and coming in with these heresies. And they would say, well, we do know. In fact, we know so much. We know what you don't know. That's how much we know. The Gnostics were a radical belief system. They mixed pagan ideas, Greek philosophies, mysticism, human reasoning, and twisted explanations of Scripture. And the Gnostics' goal was to merge certain philosophical views into the Christian faith. Many Gnostics claimed to be Christians. Oh, I'm a Christian. Now, all these beliefs. Simply put, Gnosticism believed the spirit alone was good and matter was evil. 
And as a result, uh, some of the most controversial teachings of the Gnostics had to do with the lifestyle that they advocated. On one side, you had those that said, well, marriage and procreational sex were scorned as distractions. They forbade marriage and taught that Gnostics should remain celibate. Some Gnostics actually taught that Adam was created without gender and that the ideal state one should aspire to is androgyny, where sexual identity is suppressed or eliminated. Celibate asceticism, denying one's sexuality and abhorring marriage was a way of achieving this uh, adrogynous ideal and becoming like the true God. However, on the other side, you have some of these Gnostic teachers advocating just the opposite, back to hedonism. Those that rejected marriage and promoted free love. See, these Gnostics saw God's laws as restrictive and, and inhibiting. They taught that practice of free love must be the means of bursting out of the social straitjacket that stifles true love. In fact, some Gnostic sect participated in ritual orgies, as well as all sorts of indescribable perversion. The idea was, in order to eradicate evil, it must be practiced until it's completely exhausted. Which is total nonsense, and it's opposite to what God's Word says. God's Word says, flee sexual immorality. Now, one might expect that such extreme ideas would have advantage from the Christian community, especially after being labeled as a heresy for so long, Yet despite considerable opposition by church leaders, these Gnostic heresies, they're alive and well today. The Gnostic uh, Gnosticism was a theology of liberation, promoting unlimited human freedom. It really was the early expression of Christian liberalism. In fact, modern liberals today are only imitating their long-lost cousins, the Gnostics. And many Christians, professing Christians, do not seem to realize that their progressive ideas are rooted in that ancient heresy. For example, when it, when it comes to the uh, doctrine of creation, if matter is all evil, then God could not have created the earth. The denial of creation, the push for evolution, we see it today. If Jesus truly is the Son of God, then he could not have taken on a human body because his body would be evil as all matter is evil. The, the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ, we see that today. We see the Christian view of sex and gender roles is under attack. Liberals say, well, biblical guidelines limit human freedom. But understand that the real reason for this attack goes much deeper. Let me say this. The real goal of homosexuals, radical feminists, pro-choice, and liberal progressives is to change the way Western society operates by eliminating its biblical foundation. I don't know if you caught the Right to Life rally on Friday. Uh, it was amazing to me. President Trump was the first sitting president to not only attend, but to speak at the Right to Life rally. And I love the words that he said, and I love how he closed. Let me read it to you how he closed. He said this. We cannot know what our citizens yet unborn will achieve, the dreams they will imagine, the masterpieces they will create, the discoveries they will make. But we know this. Every life brings love into this world. Every child brings joy to a family. Every person is worth protecting. And above all, we know that every human soul is divine and every human life, born and unborn, is made in the holy image of Almighty God. That is our president saying that. It's no wonder impeachment hearings are going on. No wonder they want the, the left wants to, to remove the most pro-life president out of office. He goes against everything they stand for. We need to be praying for a president like never before. Because what he faces today are the very people very much like the Gnostics of yesterday. They claim to know better. They know better than what God's Word tells us. See, Gnostics' ideas are the product of intellect, intelligent yet profoundly misguided minds. 
Gnosticism, ancient or modern, is a dangerous deception. So Paul, to counteract this, is going to tell us in this book that there's no such thing as, you know, this secret knowledge concerning Christianity. There's no deeper life club. Everything we need to know about Jesus Christ, about marriage, about self-denial, is found in God's Word, and Paul is going to point that out. Everything that God wants us to know is available to everyone, and everything that God has for us is found in Jesus Christ and in the pages of His Word. And that doesn't mean there's not a depth that God wants to, to, to us to know. God does want us to go deeper and mature in our knowledge and love for Him. But that takes a lifetime. See, once we give our life to Jesus Christ, we become miners. That's it, mining out the treasures and the nuggets found in God's Word about Jesus and, 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 and the truth of God's Word. That's why the enemy today seeks to attack God's Word like never before. Because God's Word is all about Jesus. The world says the Word of God is not sufficient, and there are those that question the Bible as the Word of God. Even some pastors and professors today calling into question the validity of the Genesis account of creation. Or to hear some of these pastors and professors criticizing the Apostle Paul for being a sexist or narrow-minded concerning his writings on homosexuality. Even questioning the validity of the teachings of Jesus. That's what we're seeing today. See, there's nothing new under the sun. If it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. But when we begin to question the inerrancy of the Word of God, then we open up a Pandora's box concerning what we choose to believe and, and not to believe. And listen, the Bible is either God's Word completely, it's true, or none of it is true. You can't pick and choose what you believe and what you don't believe. And Paul's going to address that in chapter 2. But now, with that as our backdrop, we're going to see four points uh, that Paul wants to make that he's thankful for, if you're taking notes. He's thankful for, number one, their faith, number two, their love, number three, their hope, and number four, their fruit. First, look how he begins, starting in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul, he had never met these people before. In his travels, he, he never went to Colossae. But he starts off his letter with introducing himself. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. One of the things you can love about Paul is that he was confident in his calling. He knew that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. That was God's will for his life. In the same way, are you confident what you do is God's will for your life? Do you see yourself as being the IT guy by the will of God? Or the contractor by the will of God? Or the school teacher by the will of God? Or the housewife by the will of God? Some people have the mentality, well, if I'm not doing some sort of full-time ministry, then I'm not in the will of God. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Because what you do is your ministry. You're there by the will of God. I was a Postal worker for 17 years by the will of God. And I'm thankful that God delivered me from that. <laughs> so I guess you might say I'm an ex-postal worker. You've got to watch out for those guys. Lord pulled me away. Instead of delivering mail, I'm delivering sermons. What I love to see, though, is people who are out there in the world that know that what they are doing is the will of God. They know that God has given them these skills and, and these abilities and these positions to touch the lives of those around them. It's their ministry. I think of the many doctors and nurses who worked on saving my granddaughter's lives who were born at 28 weeks. They were there by the will of God. Well, next Paul addresses who he's writing to, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who were in Colossae. 
The Greek word Paul uses for saints there is the word hagios, which means consecrated ones or set apart ones. That's what the Christian is. The someone who's been snatched out of this world, set apart from this world to do and live for God's purposes. Do you look at yourself that way? You should, because if you're a believer here today, that's exactly what's happened to you. God snatched you out of this world and set you apart for his own purposes. Your life no longer belongs to yourself. It belongs to God. He has consecrated you for his purpose to make you that saint. I like what J. Vernon McGee used to say, either you're a saint or you ain't. And if you ain't, I can tell you God's will for your life is to become a saint. (laughs) Repent of your sins, give your life to him today. I also like Paul's other description of these believers. He calls them faithful brethren in verse 2. That means that they were trustworthy. They were dependable. They were available to God. I love people like that. People you can count on. People that God can count on. There are many like this in our church. Faithful people who know, man, there's a need. I'm going to see if I can take care of that. They're all over it. Those are the kind of people I want to be around. Now, starting in verse 3 and on through verse 8, Paul is going to focus on this incredible work that God has done in the life of this church. And that's what we're going to spend the remainder of our time on, focusing on these four things, their faith, their love, their hope, and their fruit. Look again at verses 3 through 5. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So Paul says he's heard of their faith, he's heard of their love in verse 4, and he's heard of their hope in verse 5. And the first thing he's thankful for, if you're taking notes, is he's heard of their faith. Now when you think about this, that's a pretty impressive statement. The faith of Colossae, the church there, was so great that it's known all around the world. Man, today faith it's kind of in fashion. Faith is in. It's cool to have faith. Hey, man, you just got to have faith. But the truth is, faith has no intrinsic value in and of itself. It must derive its value from the object of one's faith. In other words, what faith connects you to, that's important. A person's faith is, is only as strong as the object of that person's faith. I recently read a, uh, an article, an interview that Brad Pitt did for GQ magazine. In it, Brad, who's raised Southern Baptist, raised here in in Springfield, Missouri, said this concerning his faith. When I got on my own, I completely left it and I called myself agnostic. Tried a few spiritual things, but didn't feel right. He said that he called himself an atheist for a while as an act of rebellion. I wasn't really, but I kind of labeled myself that for a while. He said, it felt punk rock enough. Eventually, he shifted into a more spiritual mindset. I found myself coming back around to just belief in, I hate to use the word, spirituality, but just a belief in that we're all connected, he said, end quote. So his faith is in faith, is in spirituality. Actor Ricky Gervais, a proclaimed atheist, said in an interview, I have no problem with faith or spirituality. I feel it in different ways. I feel it when I see nature. Hollywood says they have faith, but it means something totally different to us. They're saying that they think they're okay because they have some sort of spirituality, some sort of faith. But true faith, true faith is like an anchor on a boat. It's not the anchor that holds the boat. Rather, it's what the anchor is hooked to that holds the boat from moving. Some people are 60 feet out in 60 feet of water and their anchor line only goes down 30 feet. They throw it out and there's no connection. They drift aimlessly throughout their life. Like Brad and, and like Ricky Gervais. 
Their faith like an anchor never hooks up with anything. The, the exercise of throwing the anchor out is great, but the result is worthless. Now, other people, they have the right length rope on their anchor, but it lands in the sand. It might feel solid at its first tug, but ultimately the sand's not going to hold and the anchor is going to drag. And for some of them, that anchor is just dragging because their faith is resting on shifting sand. It's resting on the shifting sand of false religious systems, of self-help programs. Even on church itself can be the sand your anchor is dragging on. Listen, our, our, our faith, our anchor of faith needs to be hooked onto the rock, Jesus Christ. Immovable, mighty God. And this is what Paul says. The church in Colossae was hooked on Jesus. You heard of hooked on phonics. They were hooked on Jesus. Their faith in Jesus made such an impact on their lives or those in the church that they gained that reputation of their faith. It is centered around and based on Him. Paul says in verse 4 that he's heard of their faith in Jesus. I wonder what Paul would say about us. Not a Calvary Chapel Spring, but I heard of you guys. I heard of, what are we known for? What would we hear about? Is Jesus making a difference in our lives? And we're going to be known for our faith in Jesus. Now the sad thing is that it's pretty easy to get caught up in the things around us to the point where Jesus can no longer be the center of our faith. You know, sometimes the center of our faith is, 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 is people in their faith in themselves or in their jobs or in their finances or even in their church and not Jesus. Paul was not thankful for the church of Colossae because he, they had a nice building, because they had a great worship team or great children's ministry. He was thankful for them because he could see their faith in Jesus. And if Jesus is the center of our faith, then our lives are going to be different. That's my prayer, that our church would be known for our faith. Now, in order for that to happen, it has to be evident in our lives. And secondly, we need to be involved in the lives of other people so they can see our faith in action. Let me say that again. We need to be involved in the lives of other people so they can see our faith in action. That brings us to point number two that Paul was thankful for. Number two, their love. Paul was thankful for, he says, look at verse 4. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for some of the saints. That doesn't say some there, does it? It says, we heard of your love for those saints that are lovable. That doesn't say that. Since we heard of your love for the saints in our own little group that we have. No, Paul says he's thankful because he heard of your love for all the saints. All of them. See, that's an important issue. If you cannot love the most unloving of us, then Jesus is not making a difference in your life. Because if Jesus is making a difference in your life, then it's going to be evident in the love that you have one for another. Listen, Jesus loved Judas. And he had plenty of reasons not to to love him. And it's a beautiful thing when you see in the church a love for all the saints. Not just for some, not just for the lovable, but for all. And that's what made the early church so amazing and so enticing to the ancient world. You had the barbarians, you had the Scythians, you had the slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, learned and, 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 and ignorant, joined hands and sat down at the same table together. They knew themselves to be all one in Christ Jesus. Maybe some of you are, are familiar with the early days when the first Calvary Chapel that started out in, in, in California in the late 60s, all the hippies were getting saved. They're showing up in their blue jeans and, and holes in them and, and long hair. And some even had shoes on. But what was great is that, you know, they were sitting right next to people in their 50s and, and 60s in, in suits and nice dresses. But it didn't matter because their love for Jesus brought them together and gave them that love for each other. And when the hippies started bringing in their drums and, and guitars into the church, 
replacing the old hymns and the organs. It really didn't matter to the older saints because they were so excited to see these young people using their gifts for the Lord. Why? Because Jesus was the focus and is the focus. People weren't judging one another. They weren't playing church. They were there because they loved Jesus and they loved His Word. And because they loved Jesus, they had a love for one another. It's pretty simple. I read a story about a lady that came to the pastor and said that she was going to leave the church. When the pastor asked why, she gave a list of issues involving many of the other members of the church. Well, this lady over here, she's gossiping, and a, this other person's a hypocrite, and the worship team wasn't living consistent lives, and, and people were looking at their phones during the worship service. Well, in order to make the, the point, the pastor tells the lady to walk around the church with a full glass of water without spilling a drop. When she returned without having spilled a drop, the pastor moves in to make his point. He asked whether or not she had noticed any hypocrites, any gossips, or people on their phone. Obviously not. So he says to her, you were focused on the glass to make sure you didn't stumble and spill any water. It's the same with our life. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, we don't have time to see the mistakes of others. We will reach out a helping hand to them and concentrate on our own walk with the Lord. That's my heart for this fellowship. That God would continue to grow us together in that same love and simplicity. And when people come to this church, even unbelievers show up, they will see our love for one another and for them. Not that in the name of love we would compromise truth. Not that in the name of love we would be accepting of all lifestyles. Listen, when the hippies came to church in the late 60s and early 70s, many of them were caught up in drugs. Many of them were, were, were involved in sexual promiscuity. They were welcomed in with open arms. They were loved on. But that old lifestyle was never accepted in the church. And the goal was, and still is today, that people come into this church and they see a living church, an accepting church, a loving church, but also a church that does not compromise the Word of God. The Word of God is going to be taught here. And if we come across a scripture that calls sin, sin, then we're going to call it out like it is. It's going to be taught. And the goal is that through the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, that eventually that old lifestyle will fade away and the new life begins. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, a pardoned sinner will hate the sins which cost the Savior's blood. And here's my point. The Gnostics accepted all sorts of sinful lifestyles regardless of what the Word of God said. God's Word calls sin, sin, and we cannot and will not compromise on that. Do we want you to come to the church? Yes. Do we want you to get saved? Absolutely. Do we want you to stay in that old sinful lifestyle? Absolutely not. Why? Because we care about you. Because we love you. Yes, Calvary Chapel is about come just as you are. Why? Because it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about allowing Him to change your life and the Word of God through the Spirit of God speaking to your heart. Our job absolutely is sharing the love of Christ with anyone that comes through these doors. And once you're through these doors, our desire for you is to know Him better, to love Him more, to walk in His ways, and to be transformed into the image of His Son. I thank Bruce for, for that saying. It's a good one. To know Him better, to love Him more, to walk in His ways, and to be transformed into the image of His Son. And I might add to that saying, and to make Him known. That's what a loving church looks like. That's what it's all about. Through the teaching of the Word of God and the fellowship we can have one with another, God moves powerfully in our lives. That's why we have all the services we do here. You know, we have our prayer, praise, and communion night coming up this Wednesday. Why? We can able to minister and, and edify one another. Show that love one to another. We have our men's and women's studies to help build a better connection with, with each other in the body of Christ and closer to the Lord. See, church, Calvary here is not a place we go to once a week, but it's a family we belong to. 
And if the Lord should see fit for us to move to that new facility, it's designed in such a way that there will be plenty of room for more opportunity for growth, more opportunity to reach out in the community, more places to fellowship, to just hang out and spend time together in God's Word. There will be an enclosed area of grass where the kids can play and parents can fellowship and talk about the Word and pray together. We can do outside outreaches there, out concerts there. See, I do believe when the time comes, it's going to be great. It's going to be a blessing for the church and really give us a greater opportunity for growth, a greater opportunity to impact our community with the love of Christ as they see the love and concern we have for each other in our church. And I would encourage you here in the fellowship that, that you can see the value and the vision of this new facility and really start praying for it. Start supporting what's happening. Now, don't get me wrong. We are blessed in this facility here. And we can and we do show love for each other and we can impact our community now. But I believe God desires greater things for us in this city. So if God is making a difference, if Jesus is making a difference in your life, it'll be evident in your faith in Jesus. It'll be evident at how you're able to love the brethren. I mean, we can say all we want how much we love, uh, you know, Jesus, but, but, but if we don't love one another, they're just empty statements. Jesus said this in John thirteen thirty five. By this all men will you'll know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Now the third characteristic that this church was known for is what the Apostle Paul was thankful for was their hope. Look at verse 5. Paul was thankful because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. It's a story about a man who approached a little league baseball game going on one afternoon and he asked the boy in the dugout what the score was. The boy responded, 18 to nothing, we're behind. Boy said to the spectator, I bet you get discouraged. Why should I be discouraged, replied the boy. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. I mean, that's hope, you know. And if Jesus is making a difference in our lives, then we're going to see the big picture. We're going to have hope. When things get rough, we're going to cling to that hope that we have. Isaiah 41.10, I love what it says. The Lord says, fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that should give you hope. A person or church with hope is focused on the eternal. That word for hope means an absolute expectation of coming good. Hope says, yeah, I know it's rough down here, but this is the worst it's ever going to be. Paul says, no, this hope was laid up for you in heaven. That word laid up means stored away to put away for one's use. That hope which is laid up for you in heaven is, is the blessed hope. We're to look for the coming of Christ. We're to love His appearing. But not only that, God will reward us, reward us rather, in heaven. Our treasure, our reward is not going to come during our lifetime on this earth. For the treasure for every believer is laid up for them in heaven. Doesn't mean that we can't be blessed here on this earth or accomplish great eternal things here. It simply means that, 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 that we know that all the world has to offer is nothing compared to what awaits us in glory. It means we're willing to sacrifice here because whatever we give up here will come back to us you know, a hundred times over in heaven. Paul wrote this in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's hope. So if Jesus is making a difference in your life, your hope in the future will allow you to sacrifice some of the present things for the future gain of heaven. So, where did they get this faith, this love, this hope? Verse 5 again, you heard before the word of truth of the gospel. The gospel. The Colossians had rested their hope on the gospel, the good news. 
The gospel is a simple message which God simply asks you to believe. You're to believe on the basis of certain facts. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He performed miracles. He's the God-man. He died on the cross, was buried. He rose from the dead three days later. He ascended back into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world on the day of Pentecost to form the church. He's sitting at God's right hand today. His position there indicates that our redemption is complete. We are to enter into rest, which He offers to those who come to Him. See, the Colossians did not get their faith and hope and love from staying home and listening to inspirational messages from, you know, a, a, you know, positive speakers. No, their faith, their hope, their love came because they heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, wherever the gospel seed is sown, there will be fruit. And that's the final thing that Paul says he's thankful for. Number four, their fruit. Look at verse six. Paul says that the gospel that has come to you, as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. Paul says, since you've heard the gospel in the very beginning, the ev- there's evidence that there's fruit in your life. Something happened. You know, wherever the gospel seed is sown, fruit is going to grow. Many of you guys know my love for figs, and it's sad that we can't grow them out here just because of the weather, but, but in California, man, I had a tree that was, it was a very enjoyable. When it was, you know, it was, when it was time, you know, season was time, man, I can take two, three, four figs and just eat them. Next day I can come and there's, there's ten more on that tree. I mean, it's just amazing that the, the fruit production will never stop. In the same way, if the gospel has penetrated your life, your life will be fruitful for God. The fruit production will never stop. Paul here says that those in Colossae, that the word has been bearing fruit from the day they heard and understood the word. See, this goes back down to knowing Christ and making Him known. If we're not producing fruit right now, then perhaps it's time to spend more time in God's Word. Because the deeper you go in your relationship with Him, the greater fruit that will be produced in your life. Don't need some fancy program to grow. You just needed Jesus to make the difference in the lives of each one of us in this church. Let me say this. Part of the reason a church stops growing is because individuals within that church stop growing. If Jesus is making a difference in your life, the Word of God will be penetrating your life and the result will be there will be fruit in your life. Are you withering on the vine? Are you feeding yourself with the Word of God? Finally, as we close, look at verse 7 and 8. Paul says to the church, As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love, in this spirit. Now we don't know a lot about Epaphras except for the couple of times Paul mentions here in the letter and once in Philemon. He's called a dear fellow servant who is a faithful ministry. He was most likely an evangelist. Notice in verse 7 we are told that they learned the gospel from Epaphras. He was producing fruit. He was, he was not going to leave it to someone else to teach people. We're told in Colossians 4.12 that he was the one who labored hard for Jesus. You know, Paul tells us to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Listen, if Jesus is making a difference in our lives, then we're not all going to be called to be teachers, but we are called to make disciples. Again, Paul called Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ. If you were mentioned in the Bible, what would Paul say about you? Our beloved Tom, who uh, got a good wife, kids are great, but Tom, well, I don't know about him. <laughs> Listen, I, I hope we could all strive to be like Epaphras, 
Not that he was anything special. He was just committed to knowing Jesus and willing to let God use him in whatever way God desired. Because if Jesus is making a difference in our lives, then it'll, it'll be the same way, committing to knowing Jesus, willing to let God use us in whatever capacity he sees for our lives. You see, as we study this book of Colossians together, I hope that we will examine our hearts and come to the same conclusion. Lord, we want to know you better, to love you more, to walk in your ways, to be transformed into the image of your Son, and to make him known. I pray that's your heart this morning. If not, I challenge you for 2020 to start letting him do his work in you and through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and for this, this book especially, Lord. I'm excited as we know that it's going to reveal, Jesus, your true nature. And how incredible that will be. It will blow our minds. Now, Father, I pray as we go our way this morning, Lord, that we would walk in your love, that we would walk with the hope that we have. We would walk in faith. And, Lord, if there's not fruit being produced in our lives, that we would dig deeper into our relationship with you, Lord. We would spend more time in your word, more time in fellowship with the saints, more time together that we might be youthful, Lord, for you. And that the fruit would be evident. And Lord, when people would look at this church, they would say, see a church that loves you and loves your word. And finally, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has not given their hearts and life to you, they're not born again this morning. Lord, would you touch their heart especially. Help them to see their need for you. Lord, we can't live a Christian life without knowing you and without your Holy Spirit. And Lord, maybe there's some here that are trying to live this life without knowing you. Lord, help them to see their need for you, turn from their sin and turn from you this morning. Commit their life to you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your great grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand and we'll do one last song.